welcome to Trumpet Dynamics, telling the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. Bringing world-class trumpeters from around the world, sharing their stories that will thrill and inspire your trumpet journey, here's your host, James Newcomb. Welcome to the Trumpet Dynamics Show. My name is Sana, and I'm glad you have joined us for today's episode. Today, we are proud to bring onto the show Justin Bland. Justin is an exceptional Baroque trumpeter currently living in Copenhagen, Denmark. He has made quite a name for himself, both among trumpet community and in the music community in Denmark and beyond. This is a reminder that all episodes of the show can be found by visiting trumpetdynamics.com and that James Newcomb's website can be found at jamesnewcombontrumpet.com. Not under trumpet, but on trumpet.com. On both those websites, you can learn more about James, the mission of Trumpet Dynamics, and subscribe to James' prestigious email newsletter. I know I always look forward to reading all those emails. They're fun, they're really entertaining, and I often learn something new about James. Now, before we get into the featured interview, I overheard James talking about why he doesn't like to use the word podcast to describe his shows. I thought it was really interesting, so I took out my phone recorder and asked him to share what was on his mind. So, I'll just ask, James... Why do you not like to use the word podcast to describe your show? I wouldn't call it a problem per se that, you know, using the word podcast is actually causing any type of struggle or any kind of uh, problem for anybody. It's not, it's not really fair to say that it's a problem, but it, it, it is a bit uh, problematic in that when you use the word podcast, you're really boxing yourself in to a certain expectation or a certain box of what you, people are listening to, what they're expecting. When you hear the word recital, you think of something very different than the word concert. And neither are wrong, it's just different. And when you use the word podcast, you automatically have a the person that you're talking to, they automatically have a picture in their mind of what you're talking about. When you hear the word podcast, you think of something very basic, a little bit of introduction music. You have a little bit of, uh, you know, a little dialogue and, uh, and then somebody gets on, says, welcome to my show. And today my guest is this, and my guest is, we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about that. And, it's it's fine. It, it serves a purpose, and it's great. But that's what you expect when you hear the word podcast. And so when I use the word podcast to describe my show, I think it's it's doing myself a bit of a disservice in some ways because when you hear that word, that's what you're expecting. And you don't expect something out of the ordinary. But But at the same time, when you do a podcast and you do something that is out of the ordinary, well, it works to your advantage because you're, you're shaking people a little bit out of their mental mindset of what they're expecting. And, and it, it's very pleasing. 
But that's why I hesitate to use the word podcast to describe my show, because it's not what you would expect in a podcast. Yes, there's an interview. Yes, there is, uh, you know, you have the standard basic components of a podcast, but it's it's my show. It's a, it's a nuke cast, you know? It's very much unique to me. And that's, if there's some, one thing that really grinds my gears as an entrepreneur that I see people doing is, is doing things just because. We do it just because this is how you do a podcast. There's no creativity. There's no, uh, there, there's no ingenuity. It's just, this is how you do it, and this is how so-and-so does it, and so that's how we're going to do it. There's no creativity, and that's problematic. So I, another thing about podcasts is that how did we get the word podcast anyway? <laughs> did, 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 nobody ever really thinks about that. But it, the word podcast comes from the fact that these streaming audios were originally played on iPods. And that's how they got the word podcast. It rhymes with broadcast and Steve Jobs being, or whoever at, at Apple thought of it, was a very brilliant person. It's a very brilliant idea. But we don't think about how the word actually originated. It came from iPods. And so when we use the word podcast, we're all automatically uh, aping off of the intellectual property of Apple. And there's nothing wrong with it, legally, morally, ethically. But when you're trying to build a brand, you're trying to build your own little world that you want people to step into whenever they press play or click on whatever you have put out for public consumption, you want to stand out. You want to be you want to be you, right? You don't want to be uh, signed, sealed, and approved by Apple Incorporated. That's not what you want. You want to be something that is approved by you, that you do. So it's not like I get a visceral reaction. It doesn't make me angry <laughs> if I hear the word podcast and somebody describing their show as a podcast. It doesn't bother me. Uh, and sometimes I, I use it myself when I'm like, I'll just say, you've been listening to the Trumpet Dynamics podcast. I do it because it's a habit. Uh, and it, it's not like there's, uh, I, I don't take issue with anyone using it. What I'm, my point is that when you are doing things just because this is the way it's supposed to be done, you're really doing yourself a disservice. And, and you are telling the people that visit your website or click play on your content that you lack creativity. You don't have the uh, ingenuity to come up with something unique, something uh, that is uniquely you. You're just doing what other people do. So, and it's not it, it's not intentional, but that's kind of the subliminal message that you're sending to people is that you're just going along with what everyone else does. Uh, so it's not wrong, of course. But if you want to set up a brand that is uniquely you, make it uniquely you in every possible way. Whether it's calling it a podcast versus a newcast or uh, whatever it is, whatever the case may be. It's, and I'm not talking about specific uh, ways to incorporate it. I'm talking about a principle in general. Well, wasn't that interesting? 
And now it's time to switch gears to the featured interview on today's episode. Ladies and gentlemen, please enjoy this conversation between James Newcomb and Justin Bland, who you can find on the website at justinblandtrumpet.com. It's nice to have Justin Bland back on the show. We had him, I think it was last summer. We're recording this in February of 22, and I think it was probably May, June ish of 21 that we had him on the show and you can check that out uh, the url is trumpetdynamics.live slash bland one bland one that's not to say that he is the bland one it's just the number one uh and then this one will be trumpetdynamics.live slash bland two so justin is bland two all right justin Get us up to speed, man. What's been going on in your world? I know that the gigs have been picking up. I've been looking at your website. You've got some cool things going on. What is going on in your world, man? Yeah, so they've been on and off. So there was, uh, at the end of 20, there was a period um, where it was really busy. At the beginning of 21, it was like almost nothing. And then it started picking up again. And then we had basically another lockdown. So beginning of 22 hasn't been so busy, but I have things lined up for the rest of the year, even though there's still some holes to fill. I think people are a little bit hesitant making commitments, but hopefully uh, more of those holes will be filled soon. What does a lockdown look like in, in Denmark? Because I know that, uh, you know, in the United States, it's lockdown is different. I don't think that the, any part of the United States, except for maybe San Francisco and New York had anything like the, really, really strict lockdowns they've had. But what does it look like over there? Well, it's not so strict. We've never had like a curfew or anything in Denmark. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, I mean, the the biggest thing, well, obviously for me, is the fact that culture is is shut down quite a bit. And it's obviously yeah. one of the first things that gets shut down. Yeah, that's it's it's interesting how... It's interesting how they say that those things are non-essential, but when you don't have it for a period of time, you realize just how essential it really is. Uh, and and it's 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 an unfortunate casualty of the mindset that that we saw so often. Uh, if you're looking at the whole picture, it's not as bad. You know, it's it's not like something like China or or even some of the other European countries where it was really bad and they would have the curfew, for example, or or things. It's never been super bad here. Even Denmark was one of the uh, the latest countries to add um, required mask wearing. Um, so, I mean, it's relatively good and we've been relatively early um, from seeing other countries experience. So they've reacted generally pretty well. It's just sometimes they they have this, this concept of um, being overly cautious. And so sometimes, which can be good, but then sometimes it's obviously not so good. You know, I was looking at your website and something that struck me was your you you have so many testimonials from previous students and parents of your students and uh, it was it was just such glowing reviews and you know thinking about my time talking to you last summer and now speaking with you now i just i just sense a, just that really sweet spirit in you just really gentle nature and i can see how uh, teaching children that are probably middle school, high school, where they're very vulnerable, they feel very exposed, just very, it's a very, very tender age. 
And I can see how someone with your personality would really excel in that. And I was wondering if you would mind sharing with us some of the teachers that have most influenced you in your development, not just as a musician, but as a person in general. So when I was younger before college, I didn't actually have any teachers. So my teachers actually really start, uh, my private teachers really start when I began college. And it's my first teacher who I think made the, the biggest impact on me. It was Chris Decker when I was studying at University of Maryland. It was just very, he was a very kind person. And he, one, th- one thing I, I love about his teaching is obviously he's really good at it, but he has this thing, you know, like some teachers can be very pushy with wanting you to do certain things, especially within their area of expertise. Um, but Chris is very open to letting whoever is studying with him kind of follow their own path, of course, giving them the, the appropriate fundamentals and all the, the stuff that a, any good teacher would do. But he um, allows a student to kind of explore his or her own interests. And that was actually really good for me because it allowed me to kind of work on Baroque trumpet playing before I actually formally studied Baroque trumpet. So that I think was a, a very, a very good thing for me. And I think that that's something that I think about um, of course, I want my students to have fundamentals, and I probably drill them really hard on that because I didn't have them. <clears throat> you know, I didn't have a teacher when I was younger, so I always want to make sure that my students are very well prepared. But of course, I'm uh, like Chris. I try to be very open to my students exploring um, their own interests, uh, trumpet-wise. Yeah, that sounds like the best possible scenario for someone who didn't have like formal trumpet lessons with a private teacher before getting to college. That's Probably, I don't know if you can get better as far as having a teacher in that particular scenario. I don't know, probably no scenario. I don't know if you can do better than Chris Gecker. He's, 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 of course, great. But when you got to University of Maryland, you're 18, 19 years old. Were you aware of the stature that he had in our community? No, I was not so aware. Of course, I read up on him as any good uh, potential student would do but I mean I didn't realize how amazing he was and it was it was actually really lucky because I grew up in Maryland so that was one of the big reasons you know I auditioned for University of Maryland because in-state tuition and everything and it just ended up being a really good fit I felt like really lucky to even have been accepted into his studio you know um, it depends on what state you're going to because it's not the same but of course a lot of music programs are limited enrollment programs. And that was the case in Maryland. And so the year I auditioned, they only uh, accepted two students um, for undergraduate. And I felt like extremely lucky considering I never thought about it until thinking I never had lessons and I managed to get into this program, but it just ended up being something that uh, I've always had a lot of passion, but I think I was able to to really develop uh, thanks to the work that Chris did with me. Uh, during that period where I um, didn't have, um, you know, regular private teachers um, before. All right. Are there any particular moments or stories that stand out to you with your time studying with uh, Chris that uh, just stand out to you as just really momentous or or just, just stand out moments from your time studying with him? I mean, I can't think of any particular, moment I just felt like 
it was more of like the relationship that I had with Chris. Um, Because even before I came, you know, I was like really excited and I wrote him before lessons started asking what books I should get. And he was just uh, very friendly. And I mean, even from the audition point, I, I just felt you know, he, he just makes you feel like very comfortable, even in, in a stressful situation, like an audition. And so like, it was actually one of the, the more relaxed auditions I think I had. So I think there was a lot of, you know, good chemistry. And I think um, I just remember, well, I mean, I remember a lot, but I think the thing that sticks out to me is just that, that good teacher student relationship that we had, even something as simple as, you know, um, him saying, you know, just call me Chris rather than Mr. Gecker or something. Like even those little things just kind of build that um, kind of strong relationship, especially and especially when you haven't had a teacher. I mean, like I, I did like the youth orchestra program. So I had like a, a trumpet coach who kind of served as a teacher, but like never having that private teacher. So it's the first real private teacher I had besides a, a few lessons that I had in preparation for my audition. So I think that the, that, student-teacher relationship, the strength of that was something that made me feel really comfortable. And I think that um, his approach is very much uh, one where he guides you, but he's not a forceful teacher. But what do you mean forceful? Uh, Well, it's always the case where you always get what you put into it. But he, you know, he, I mean, I don't, I guess I don't know, because I never like really not been passionate about it, but it didn't feel like it, it felt like more like you were responsible for your own progress and it never felt like it never felt like an obligation. Like I have to do this yeah. in order to succeed. Okay. Okay. That makes yeah. sense. It, all, it, it was just very comfortable and um, you know, you never felt stressed. Like sometimes there's a week where you have a gig or something and you don't do your assignment, but you don't actually, I mean, he's, he's just very good at teaching. <laughs> so yeah. he's always like, he's strict where he needs to be, but he is not, it just feels like you can breathe and you can really, it never, it ne- yeah, it never felt like an obligation to do these things is, it's whatever you put into it. And it's very clear right? Um, that, um, and it just, uh, it's a very good fit for me. I mean, yeah. sometimes students need more pushing, I guess, in some <laughs> cases. Um, but for me, I was always pushing myself and I think those are the students who are going to most succeed anyway. So it just worked really well for me. Cool, man. And when you're teaching, do you ever uh, have a, a moment where, because sometimes I'll have a moment where I'm with my son and I'll say, oh my, my goodness, that's something that my dad said to me and I've just become my father. Do you, do you ever have moments where uh, you say something or like, man, that's exactly what Chris Gecker would have said? Or so, maybe not him, but another teacher. You ever have moments I mean, like I, that? I mean, I kind of, I mean, I'm sure I ha- I never think about it, I guess, in the moment, but sometimes yeah. I, I can yeah. see that where I'm like trying to do the same things that my teachers did for me. Yeah. Cool. All right. Change of, change of topic. Uh, recently, I did a little tweaking for the, <clears throat> the intro- introduction music for the podcast, and I, d- I, w- I didn't even intend to use it for the podcast until I think maybe a week ago, and I just realized this is perfect for what I want to do with this show. And I think it was, I, I want to say December of 2021. And I just had it in my mind. I just, I just had uh, the Light Cavalry Overture by Franz von Suppe in my mind. I don't know why I had it, but I thought, I want to record that. I want to just do all the videos 
and just, just, I just want to do it. I just want to push myself and challenge myself to do it. <clears throat> and so I Google um, Light Cavalry Trumpet Ensemble, and there it is on Cherry Classics. Uh, Gordon Cherry is a great trombonist in Vancouver, uh, British Columbia, I believe. And he's got a <clears throat> wonderful website with, with all just a wonderful collection of music. And so there is the Light Cavalry Overture arranged by Justin Bland. And I said, oh, I know that guy. And it turns out it's a really nice arrangement. And I've been shedding on it. And it's, it, uh, it goes from the extreme low register all the way to, you know, a, a, on the, pretty much the top of the register on a piccolo trumpet. So you, one has to have uh, their chops in order in order to attempt this. So I have my work cut out for me in order to do the full thing. But um, I want to pick your brain a little bit about how you got not just that per piece particular, uh, specifically, but how did you get interested in arranging? And two, how did you get so good at it? Um, yeah, so I haven't been arranging lately, but when I, I mean, I have always kind of, ever since I had my music notation software, which I used to sell it, um, and I actually first started using that in my master's degree because I was doing an, uh, like, notation class uh, early music notation where we transcribe you know like uh, like medieval that kind of period music um, into modern notation so we had to have a notation software program and i kind of just started like just kind of playing around with arranging some things and um i think i was the first time i actually really shared it with somebody uh, was doing my doctorate when I was doing like a little trumpet ensemble piece. Um, and I wanted to play it at this little festival. And I was told that it was actually a good arrangement. So then I started kind of arranging more for there. And then I, um, the first piece I actually did um, that I got published was the La Damas Te uh, movement from B minor mass. Uh, and it was actually, I wrote Gordon and said, would you be interested in maybe me arrange some things? And he said, send me your best thing. And that was the best thing that I had at that point. He's like, I like that. So then I, I did a few arrangements uh, for him. And it was, and uh, I was actually doing a lot during this period where I was, where I was, where I graduated and, or was about to graduate. Um, before I ended up moving to Denmark. So I didn't really have much work. So I had lots of time on my hands. And that was, uh, during that period, I was doing quite a bit of arranging. Yeah. When, when did you do the Light Cavalry? Over there in Denmark? Um, no, I think that was before I moved. Oh, okay. I th yeah, it was like 2012, I want to say. I think. I can't remember. Yeah, I can't. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't remember. But it was, it was, it was before. Yeah, it was, I remember it was before I moved because I had, and before I sent it to Gordon, I ended up testing it out with people from University of Nevada, Las Vegas, where okay. I was doing my doctorate. So right. it right. must have been, you know, sometime between 2011-ish to 2014 sometime. <laughs> it's, just, it's deceptively, it seems like, like you listen to it and you think, man, I can do that. But it's like acting. You like, you watch someone... Uh, acting in a show and you think, oh, I could do that. And then you try to act and you're, oh, it's, it's a lot harder than it looks. And that piece is, it's uh, a bit deceptive 
it sounds doable and then you like get into the weeds with it and it's really difficult to just my biggest challenge right now <clears throat> is just getting everything in sync with the I think the eighth notes at letter B the getting all four of those uh, parts parts to uh, sync up together on the audios it's really challenging and it's not because it's challenging on the audio technician side it's just challenging to play uh, eighth notes <laughs> it seems so easy but it's really hard to play it correctly now when you're um, arranging how what what's your thought process with uh, you have to keep in mind that these are trumpet players and they can't play forever that one ended up being one where I, I was playing through and it felt like just doable on the piccolo trumpet part because I um, you know, I play through the parts when I'm arranging it. I know it's tricky, but I, I kind of try to try to, of course, think about those things. But I mean, sometimes I, I might push it a little bit because I have, I mean, I don't play so much uh, piccolo trumpet anymore, but that used to be like one of my really good strengths. So I was always, I never thought about how hard sometimes the piccolo trumpet part is because I kind of write it myself. Um, but I, <laughs> But I mean, like, I kind of, of course, make sure that the parts are actually playable. Yes. Um, I mean, the the I mean, generally, the, the the easiest thing to do is make sure that they're individually playable. And then, if I have a chance to like try it out with some people, and I can see how it works ensemble wise. And this one uh, ended up being, you know, it's challenging. But you know, when you throw it in front of a bunch of trumpet players, it actually is possible. So it ended up being. Um, but I mean, sometimes I don't always get a chance to do that. Like some of the, even like the, the very first piece that I did with Gordon, the Lagoon. Well, actually, no, that's not true. That one we, I played. But sometimes I arrange a piece and I don't have a chance to actually try it out with like real players. So I kind of mm -hmm. have to trust, especially, I mean, of course, I make sure that the trumpet parts are practical. And then I, I know enough about the other brass instruments to, to see if they're possible. So usually the trumpet parts are the hardest parts anyway. Right. Um, and I make sure that those are within the, the realm of playability. Um, but mm -hmm. it's a, a lot of considerations. And of course, when you have an arrangement, you expect that sometimes people will modify it anyway um, to, to tweak things that might work better for them, especially when you're dealing with a piece that's not written for that ensemble, then you have these mm -hmm. liberties uh, to make it work for whatever ensemble you're working with. So you try to make sure that it's playable, right. um, but just know that sometimes people will tweak things. <laughs> Well, uh, the trumpet ensemble as a as a genre, if you want to call it that, has really grown in the last 20, 25 years. And I actually had Denny Edelbrock on the show uh, two episodes before you, before this one that we're, we're recording now. And he was talking about how when he started the National Trumpet Competition in 90, I think 91, 92, somewhere around there, it was, they had a, they had a couple of pieces, but now it's it's a flourishing within our little niche. It's there's so much, and it's it's interesting how um, just demand rises the more you do something. People catch on and they, hey, that's cool. I can do that. Now, when you're if you're um, you talked a little bit about you play you'll play these things, but when you're maybe rehearsing a piece or a, a, you're you're watching a ensemble do one of your arrangements. What is the, what are the most challenging things to bring 
in this case, seven players together and make them sound as close to like one person as possible? What are the, some of the just really sticking points that people and ensembles encounter? I mean, one benefit that you have with trumpet is that when you're playing, you know, a bunch of trumpet players, we all kind of know what the trumpet does. So um, in some respects, <clears throat> certain things are easier. But of course, you know, there's always issues of like intonation of the ensemble. And of course, as trumpet players, we deal a lot with uh, endurance. And so like when I, like I, I actually heard a recording of, of this this like cavalry and i'm like oh is that too hard uh because i mean it's it's a, it's definitely a challenging piece and sometimes you like think did i actually when you're not playing one of the parts especially the most difficult part and it's like is that you know it's so like i kind of look at these things and sometimes it teaches you um when you arrange something else then to to maybe I mean, you, you always, I think music is one of those things where, uh, you know, if nobody pushes the boundaries of what's possible, then you don't advance, but you have to also be careful and practical. And especially when you're trying to, for example, sell arrangements and that you want people to actually play and perform. Uh, you have to kind of find a balance between, uh, you know, pushing technique and then having something that people are going to feel like they can actually do. Or something like national trumpet competition, for example. Yeah, I think Denny Edelbrock said something along the lines of when he's when people are uh, submitting material, he'll just say, "Man, don't 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 send us something that you can't play. Play something that's within your range. Don't think that you're going to be the hero and you're going to play this thing that's out of your that's out of your league. You, one, you're 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 not going. You're going to kind of embarrass yourself, and two, you're going to get discouraged. But if you can take something that's maybe a notch down and crush it, 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 it does wonders for your morale, but who's to say that that can't lead to eventually getting that, that more difficult piece. But uh, we, we're prone to be impatient at times, and we forget that there is a process of developing our minds and our bodies in order to perform at a certain level. And if we are ignorant of that process, or if we try to rush it, it is often to our detriment. So um, I want to pick your brain a little bit about this Nast Nastved weekend festival. Yeah, the Nestville. Nestvel? <laughs> yeah, the, in Danish we have a sound called the soft D, and so it's kind of like, it's hard to describe, but it's it's like this, not quite a D, so it's Nestville. But yeah. Okay. All right, it so took me a while to actually be able to say the be able to say the sound when I was starting things. <laughs> right, so the nest nest, I'm just going to call it the Nestvel. Is that okay? Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. All right, Nestvel Weekend Festival. Uh, if you go to Justin's <clears throat> website at justinblandtrumpet.com, and you go there, it's password protected, and I just verified it. The password is not password, so you have to have an actual <laughs> yeah, so, password. <laughs> yes, yeah, so you can look at it on, on my performances. Uh, that just that page is particularly uh, set up for people who are participating so they can download music and stuff. So, okay. Okay. But, okay. So, but the information, you, you can see it on my performances if you go right. to that. Okay. And this, is this something that you're organizing or helping organize? Um, I'm the artistic director. Artistic that. director. Wow. What does, what is the role of an artistic director in, in a, an event like this? 
Um, so I'm responsible for basically putting together the program and, and then I'm finding guests to bring. Um, and then I kind of do a lot of the, the, I mean, a lot of the practical things when it comes to the musical aspects. So putting in the rehearsal schedule, um, and so, and just kind of doing that kind of organization. Yeah, a lot of administrative and stuff. Then, yeah. And then, of course, when I, when we get there, I'm kind of, uh, in a way, leading like the orchestra. I mean, besides what the, the concert master does, but like as far as the trumpet player, I'll be kind of leading um, the rehearsals and, and that oh. kind of thing. Oh, okay. So, like, okay. So, like an actual music director, like leading not just administrative yeah. stuff, but music stuff too. Yeah, so music stuff too, because it's like we the fest. It's not my festival, so right. we have like a festival director, but I'm kind of okay. in charge of okay. basically all the musical aspects as well as um, actually getting the people. So like I actually get to choose who is playing uh, in the in the festival orchestra and the the guests. Uh, sometimes like in Pat, because I this is my third year doing it, and so uh, uh, as the artistic director, it, it's been. Uh, well, they had a, used to have a bigger festival and then they kind of trimmed it down to a, a smaller weekend festival. And so I was the artistic director of the first festival and the second festival. And then, you know, it was a little bit different last year. There was no trumpet and it was Corona issues. And they wanted smaller, a smaller thing. So they did something else. And then this year I'm, I'm back. And so I have more, uh, more, control i guess this time the first year i uh, we kind of had like guests who we kind of already had and then i kind of designed the theme around uh, a concert that this particular really good group um wanted to do they wanted to do like a, a dowling program so then i made the festival like an english theme and so but now i've kind of this particular year i've kind of been in charge of all the musical aspects and I want to kind of try some um, things out. Um, so. Is this all early music, Baroque music or what kind of music is played? So, yeah. So it's, yeah. So this is, so it's an early music uh, thing. Um, I'm actually, so the, they, it's a lot of times it's Baroque based, but they'll also do Renaissance and earlier music and not really much later, but this year I do have some pre-classical repertoire. There, so maybe a little bit later than what they usually do, but still before the the proper classical period. <laughs> now you have you have to forgive my I, I'm a little bit ignorant when it comes to these uh, epochs of music. So is is it Renaissance and then Baroque, or is it Baroque and then Renaissance? Yeah, Renaissance and then Baroque, and then Baroque, and then after that is pre-classical. Yeah, we have this pre- this transitional period where we <clears throat> go from the. The, to the from the baroque to the classical, um, but we don't have we have elements of both. I mean, one of the easiest elements for us trumpet players is the clarino technique that we have from the baroque, which died out in the classical period. Um, but in this particular period, we have actually it's like the height of clarino technique in a lot of centers or in some centers. And so we have like this uh, you know this clarino technique from the baroque, but then we have textures that are hinting more to the classical, um, more uh, classical simplicity um, alongside um, daunting trumpet technique. So you have this kind of blending um, before we move into a period which is more about 
uh, you know, more of the classical simplicity. Um, so it's this kind of transitional period where it's hard to define. We have composers like Bach and Telemann who were technically active during this time, but they were writing in the older style. And then we have composers who are rejecting this Baroque style going for simplicity. And then we have some composers who are kind of blending and those kind of things. And then this, we kind of have this, this transitional period. So it's, um, we have uh, in the, the music that I've chosen, for example, for this festival, uh, well, I've chosen uh, two, uh, I have one concert devoted to pre-classical uh, works. Uh, so we have CPE Bach, we have a harpsichord concerto there, and then a, a violin concerto by Hertel. Um, I actually just did an edition of that, uh, which hasn't, well, it's been published, so it's the first edition of that. Um, a concerto for trumpet, oboe de more, and violin by Fasch's, the Fasch that we know, the one who wrote the concerto, uh, trumpet concerto by his son. Um, a very difficult piece, actually. Um, and then um, also the Hertel Double Concerto, which we know from, you know, Nicholas Eklund's recording on volume four of the article of Trumpet. So I've, I've always loved that piece uh, since I heard that. That was actually my first Art of Baroque Trumpets uh, CD that I got in volume four. And I heard that piece and I knew I wanted to play it. So I'm, I played it before, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying to take every opportunity I can to, to play it since I could program what I want. I decided to put that in the program as well. I think they should call that period of time baroque What do you think? <laughs> half Baroque, half classical, baroque No? Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it makes sense. You have a lot of, yeah. I mean, it's, it's basically blending these elements and uh, yeah. So, I mean, I wanted, uh, I thought it would be really nice to, because uh, I, in this particular festival, we're kind of, I've always wanted to um, juxtapose things that are less familiar to get people to hear them with things that are more familiar because they like them and it also brings audiences. Uh, but I've always been like a fan of, of doing things that are, are less heard. And in this particular festival, I uh, worked from like the early Baroque period and all the way to the to pre-classical. To pre so it kind of spans a good amount of time. Um, I've incorporated you know, well-known pieces. So the Brandenburgs are, uh, we have three of the Brandenburgs, two, four, and five on one of the programs. Uh, so kind of having different concerts with music from different time periods, uh, kind of finding a way to, to expose audiences to things that are less known because it was particularly in 2020, we were lucky enough to be able to, to do the festival. We did an Austro-Bohemian um, kind of theme where we put a lot of emphasis on the music of Bieber and it's not played so much here in Denmark. So um, that was something that actually came across really well where people, you know, weren't so familiar with the repertoire and that can be a little bit dangerous when you're trying to get people to come to your concerts, but it ended up being a, a really good success. So I tried to incorporate um, that. Um, you know, into my so, program. So when you're when you're advertising this <clears throat> this festival and you're saying it's going to feature the works of Bieber, you didn't have people like teeny boppers expecting Justin Bieber, did you? Oh, we made definitely jokes about that. And actually, the festival was called Justin and Bieber because you know Justin Bieber. So, so I mean, we we kind of took advantage of 
of that in the advertising, which might have helped. <laughs> it may or may not have helped. I understand. Okay, good. It was. Uh, I, I I probably showed my uh, neophytus as a podcaster by going for that joke. But uh, what are you going to do? It's there. You may as well take it. Now I have a question because I didn't expect us to go into uh, a discussion of uh, music history. Although if you're speaking to a Baroque trumpeter, why would it surprise me that this conversation would go this direction? But what did you mean by classical simplicity? Is that contrasted with uh, the Baroque? Baroque ornate. Oh, okay. Okay. You know, like the Baroque is about movement and, I mean, even the term misshapen pearl, because everything is so, uh, what Baroque means. So you have like this music that's always in motion, which is, you know, I guess music is kind of usually a reflection or uh, an observation of the art. And if you look at Baroque uh, art, it's always ornate and you can see elements of movement in it. And you have like this, this idea in the music, you know, like with all these 16th note passages and this complexity um, in the musical texture versus, you know, like if you think about Mozart's music, you have like this, this beautiful melody and it's more about like balance and phrases. Um, so this it's, it's, sim- it's simple compared to the ornateness of the Baroque period. It's, it's, it's more like, you know, you know how romanticism was kind of a rejection of all of that it might have felt a little bit stagnant. So you have this, uh, a lot of emotion. So in that way, classicism is in a way, a little bit of rejection of the, you know, of everything being so busy. I mean, even the term has negative connotations, misshapen pearl. Um, so you kind of have this, this idea. Baroque, Baroque literally means misshapen pearl? Yeah I'm, yeah, I'm not sure if it's actually that term but one of the terms that we get broke from or broke itself i, I can't oh, okay. remember uh, actually means misshapen pearl oh it's like maybe a latin term that the baroque the word baroque yeah. is derived from means misshapen yeah. pearl interesting yeah something like that and and how would that how would that apply because like you have a misshapen I mean, pearl because, you know because the water well, because, is you know the well, i'm not sure but you know these terms are not nobody during the this period is calling it baroque so it's something that yeah, music yeah, yeah. or somebody okay would. okay 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 so uh people looking back at that era that they've given that term because of its characteristics huh yeah uh, why is it called classical then what well, well, that period of time why 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 do we call it classical i actually i probably should know exactly why but i actually don't know I mean, and even like the idea of the fact that we call the whole genre classical music, um, and then we have a classical period within that. Um, there, I'm sure there, I mean, we talked about it, but it's just something that is not like in my mind. No, right no, I get that because 98 percent of the world thinks that anything that has the sound of strings is classical music, right? And we, yeah. we know we know better, but that's the way people think. It's if it's if it's got an orchestra, it's classical. That's just. People just we just get lumped into that that uh, that big big lump of popular culture, um, whatever you want to say. So, uh, okay, so the weekend festival is coming up in October of twenty twenty. Yes. I had one more question because we're running a little short on time here, but I I, I, could, I know that people listening to this might be interested in 
what can they do to prepare themselves if they want to uh, submit to be considered to be to perform at a festival like this? Maybe not in Denmark, but there's festivals all over the place. What what are you looking for in a, a group or uh, an individual? Uh, yes. So for this particular <laughs> festival, it's actually a really relatively well. It's not relatively. It's a small scale festival. So for me, um, a lot of the people who I'll bring in, I like to have a personal connection uh, with the the players whenever I can, or maybe it's just a group that like caught my eye and I just ask. Um, so you know, a lot of times with these these small festivals, you do have that that thing where you've already kind of networked with the the people who you invite. I mean, if you have a bigger festival, it might be a little bit different where you might have a lot of people actually submitting things. Um, the Nestle Festival isn't such a, I mean, it's like the biggest early music thing festival, I guess, that's happening in Denmark, I think, or at least one of the biggest. Um, but I mean, you know, Denmark's a small country, so it's probably not well known. And so I don't really get a lot of, or there hasn't been so many non-Danish groups um, submitting or asking about it. Um, but I mean, if I were doing like a bigger festival, I guess, and I had applications, I mean, I mean, I guess there's a lot of different things. It depends on uh, like from, for my particular festival, I try or I've always kind of these past three times I've done it, I've had, a, uh, a country theme and i was thinking about doing something maybe a little bit different next time i do it which maybe next year or the year following what do you mean um, a country theme like the, the uh, theme so like on this, a particular country year, yeah yeah oh, so okay. Okay. The, the austro-bohemian <laughs> lands in 2020 then it was an english theme the year before this year is a german theme okay uh, so kind of uh, okay okay so so people aren't necessarily sending in uh, uh, like audition materials to you you're you're just on the lookout for groups that yeah. you'd want to invite. Okay. Yeah. yeah that, that makes sense. That makes sense. And what what uh, what sets a group that you'd want to invite apart from other groups that, eh? Well, of course, music, uh, music is, of course, like the biggest thing. But I think that, again, something like a festival, like just knowing that I get along with, I mean, I guess I get, I don't not get along with a lot of people, but like, and if I worked with people and, and knowing that it's easy to work with them professionally, then I try to um, have them, of course, you know, people, I'm, you know, I'm the, the new kid, I'm the foreigner. So like, uh, I, of course, try to return favors for people who have shown kindness to me if I have an opportunity, you know, to invite like a group uh, who's been, uh, very helpful or very friendly it doesn't necessarily mean that they would invited me to play but just like you know like just just being just telling that there's a good relationship then you try to of course uh you know just like any like you would do like with anything just try, uh so like i kind of definitely look at those kind of aspects but of course musical i wouldn't invite people who i don't trust musically but of course when you're dealing with a lot of highly uh, capable people then those kind of things work um, in people's favor people skills are important and uh 
It's, it's one of those skills that you can develop while you are developing your instrument. You don't have to wait until you've finished your degree to become a nice person or work on some people skills. You, it's like playing the guitar. You can uh, learn both hands at the same time. You can learn your, learn your instrument and get some networking skills at the same time. It is possible. Well, we have been uh, 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 had Justin Bland on the call, and we are uh, running short on our time. And uh, it's been a wonderful treat to have him, and I encourage you guys to uh, go back and listen to the conversation that we had in the summer of 21. That is at trumpetdynamics.live slash bland1, number one, B-L-A-N-D, number one. And this episode we can find at... Uh, trumpetdynamics.live slash bland2, B-L-A-N-D number two. And I'll have uh, links to his website. I'll also have the great interview that I had with Chris Gecker uh, shortly after I spoke with Justin on the show notes for for this. So it's just uh, trumpetdynamics.live slash bland2. Take you right to the page to listen and partake of the wonderful uh, offerings that we have here on the show. So Justin, I, I want to have you on again because you opened up this huge can of worms about music history and we only got to touch briefly on it and I can tell that you are you really know your stuff and so if it's okay with you I'd like to book another time and just dive deep into trumpet history would you be agreeable to that Most definitely okay yeah. wonderful well, I mean it's something yeah and I like to talk about it especially playing historical trumpets so I definitely right. would be be very happy um, to to have another interview well he'll be our resident historian <laughs> so uh, when the time presents itself, we'll uh, we'll book another time to have Justin back on the show. But until then, thank you all for listening. And Justin, thank you so much for being on the show, man. And thank you for the invitation. That's a wrap for this episode of Trumpet Dynamics, telling the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. If you or someone you know has a dynamic story you think should be shared on this show, please email us at podcast at jamesnewcombuntrumpet.com and to subscribe to James Newcomb's email newsletter, visit trumpetdynamics.com or jamesnewcombuntrumpet.com. Thank you for listening and we'll be in your earball soon.